This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, Jeffrey Cleveland, chief economist, Payton and Regal, joining us from Los Angeles. And, of course, he can be followed on Twitter at Team Cleveland. All right, Team Cleveland, you got a chance to look at the FOMC minutes. Anything stand out to you? I think, you know, the story has been about inflation, Tim, and whether policymakers are concerned enough about inflation to, you know, maybe delay rate hikes. But um, that I don't think that appears to be the case. I think that we're going to see gradual pace of rate hikes continue into 2018. I think four for the year, so one per quarter makes makes perfect sense. So they did they did talk about the inflation uh, story, but I don't think there's enough there to. Uh, I have to tell you, sometimes I feel like I go brain dead. I know we have to talk about the Fed and what they're going to do, but I mean, they have been so clear about being transparent and making sure that they won't shock investors, not shock the markets, not shock the economy. It's going to be gradual, maybe three, maybe four. They're going to watch the data. We know the message from the Fed. So what do you think is really the most important thing for we as investors, uh, Jeffrey, to really focus on when it comes to the U.S. economy this year? I think the unemployment rate, I think it's, we're right at 4.1 right now, Carol, and very soon we think we'll be under 4. And that's a rare occurrence. Uh, you have really two times in U.S. history post-war to, where you see a sub-4% unemployment rate. So the late 1960s and very briefly in the 1990s. So I think that'll be really important driver, uh, not only of the pol- of Fed policy, but I think it's an indication that the economy is doing quite well. So investors who thought, you know, a year ago or even last year that we were at the end of the cycle, uh, I don't think uh, the four percent unemployment rate doesn't tell you that. It tells you, you know, we're probably as it continues to fall, we have more room to go, and you should still main, you should still be upbeat on the economy. That's uh, the lesson that you should learn. Jeffrey, if you end up with sub-4% unemployment rate, why do you need fiscal stimulus? You don't. You don't need it, Pim. Uh, we, we're, we're getting to this 4% unemployment rate without fiscal stimulus. I think it's extremely unusual at this stage of the cycle when you are at or very near to your full employment to see fiscal stimulus. Um, but we're getting it, you know, and I think on the margin, it, it, it's boosted our, our outlook for GDP a, a little bit. But it's not essential to our story. I think I would, I would still be having this very same conversation to you. I would still be upbeat on the U.S. economy if we did not get a uh, fiscal stimulus or a tax plan. Is that like the economy on steroids, which I guess has short-term benefits, but long-term not so great, as opposed to maybe just having a healthy diet of you know decent policies and careful management of the federal budget? I think there's the risk there, Tim, you know, that uh, this 
story that has been in place for so long is that we have low rates, we have decent growth, we have low inflation. And something that could disrupt that, sure, if you overstimulate, you could, you could get a, a, a market that starts to worry about inflation. That sends rates up too quickly. It sends credit spreads wider. You could have sort of a fit or a tantrum of that nature. So there's a risk of that. Uh, we don't see that, Tim. And the reason why is I think people are maybe overestimating how much steroids are being pumped in. Uh, so they're overestimating just just how much impact uh, the tax plan will have on the overall pace of growth. We still think two and a half to three percent growth is reasonable, and I don't think that will cause uh, an overheating, if you will, of the, of the U.S. economy. Jeffrey, I do think a lot about economic cycles and whether or not we do now have the ability to maybe have longer growth cycles um, and smaller recessionary or pullback cycles, if you will. And maybe some of that has to do with, I don't know whether everything is completely transparent, but information moves through our system so much more quickly than when I started out in business news uh, years ago. And things just, you just watch market reactions. Something comes out, you would normally think that would take down the markets and it might for a day, but then things bounce back. Mm-hmm. As we get tons of analysis and tons of reaction uh, from governments and from market observers, I mean, has something really substantially changed because of the information that flows through our system so quickly? Well, I say there's no doubt the structure of the economy has changed over over time. So over the last few decades, from being focused on goods production to services production, and I think that's dampened the cycle, you know, the volatility of the economic cycle. We're producing more services, then we don't have to worry about the boom and bust of the inventory cycle, for example. That's definitely changed. We're now the third longest cycle, the current expansion, and I think in Q2 we will pass the second longest cycle, which was the the 1960s cycle. And then we'll have one more uh, in terms of the longest cycle out in front of us, which would be the 1990s, the Clinton era. And so it's possible, I think, Carol, that we make a run at that economic cycle, too, which lasted 120 months, so mm-hmm. uh, 10 years. So, the, the, you know, that's the message here. The economy continues to look good. Growth momentum, you know, based on the data we're seeing, you know, this morning, even the ISM that came out persisted through December. And so I think we'll grow, we'll have another year of growth in 2018 and another year of growth in 2019. And this could be the longest cycle on record. It's right. great news for investors. And let's just hope, though, everybody's responsible because... When there is booms, there are often busts at the same time. I'm not trying to be, you know, pro-bubble, but I'm just saying. Jeffrey Cleveland, thank you so much. Chief Economist at Payton & Regal, joining us on the phone in Los Angeles. Yeah, we are talking about uh, cars, driving on the road and... How many people bought uh, in terms of sales? Carmakers capping their first year of shrinking U.S. sales since the recession on a high note. Let's talk about it uh, with Michelle Krebs. Let's head to Detroit. She's senior analyst at autotrader.com. They track the auto market, and she joins us uh, on the phone, as we mentioned. Hey, Michelle, so let's take a look at what we saw in December, and let's cap the year. How was it for the auto industry? Well, I, I think by any measure, it was a terrific year. It just was not the record that we had uh, last year and then the year before. Um, but it was another year. That I think it was the fifth year uh, in history that uh, the industry sold more than 17 million vehicles. So that's something to brag about. 
Michelle, one of the things I look at are the deals. A $10,000 total value when you finance a new GM pickup. 60 months and 0% APR when you buy a new GM. How can the companies make money if they keep offering these kinds of promotions? Well, what we have, what we saw this past year with incentives were, while you see some of those eye-popping deals, they're very specific. Um, we are seeing a lot of uh, targeting uh, right down to the specific kind of customer, the geography, the specific kind of vehicle. So while, while those are uh, eye-popping deals, they aren't necessarily across the board. Uh, and, and by the way, on pickup trucks, there's a huge amount of profit in those. So even with those promotions, the company's still making a lot of money. Oh, absolutely. What absolutely. kind of margin numbers are we talking about? How much does it cost to actually build, for example, one of those big uh, Silverado 1500s? Well, I, I don't know exactly the numbers, but, you know, we, we've been, we're told that on full-size pickup trucks, there's 10,000-plus um, profit margin in those. It depends on, on the truck. Uh, you know, there are trucks selling for seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000, so... Um, there's that is the bread and butter of uh, the Detroit automakers in particular. Hey, Michelle, I want to ask you about a, a story, and Pim and I are going to talk a little bit later on here on Bloomberg Markets, but it talked about how individuals, especially when it comes to like electric vehicles, what they're doing is they're leasing cars rather than buying because they figure, hey, in a couple of years, it's going to be an even better car, and I don't really want to own it, and I'll swap it out, just like we swap out you know, new phones. In terms of where the auto market is going, is that the kind of what we're going to be seeing, that people are going to, is going to be less ownership and more leasing? And I'm, I'm curious, longer term, down the road, what it means for the auto industry, potentially. Well, for a few, uh, longer term, we do see people acquiring uh, personal transportation different ways. We're seeing subscription systems, for example, being, coming into the market. Um, leasing has always been around. And one of the attractions of leasing is that you always get to have the latest technology. So it's not surprising at all that uh, people who go for electric vehicles, um, they're going to want to change up to the newest technology. It's just like someone buying, having the most recent iPhone and then upgrading when the, the next one comes out. So it's not surprising at all in that segment. And that, that segment will see a lot of uh, technological improvement in the coming years. Michelle Krebs, I know you probably have the answer to this, but I'm going to do it anyway. What is Hope America's so. best-selling electric car? Um, well, we don't have Tesla numbers in, um, but uh, the Chevrolet Bolt did very, very well good. You get year. you get yeah. five stars there. The Chevy <laughs> Bolt outsold Nissan's electric Leaf more than two mm -hmm. to one, and they sold thirty two hundred units in December, mainly because of that employee pricing. But it also outsold the plug in hybrid models that include Toyota's Prius Prime and Chevy's own Vault. Do you think that GM could be the sleeper when it comes to electric vehicles? Oh, may may well be. I mean, they are putting a lot of focus on it. Um, and I think that the the key to the Chevy Bolt is they broke that barrier uh, to get the uh, range up. That the Chevy Bolt has a range of 238 miles, and we're hearing of people getting even more than that on a single charge. And one of the big holdbacks of electric uh, of people buying electric vehicles is they're nervous about the range, and and Chevy has uh, pretty much conquered that with the Bolt. Anything surprising in the latest uh, sales figures? No, unfortunately, there is. We've, we're seeing the same story play out that we have in, in recent history. We're seeing 
um, traditional cars, especially midsize sedans and small cars, uh, decline while sport utility vehicles of all sorts, small, medium, large, uh, luxury, non-luxury, are booming. And um, and we saw a very robust uh, pickup truck market. And I think those same trends will be in place for 2018. What about the build quality of your automobiles? Because uh, last year, what? No, I beg your pardon, year before, Ford recalling, what, about 150 uh, F-150s, Expeditions, Navigators, and Mustangs because they downshift unexpectedly. Uh, Total recalls, I think, are like over a million and a quarter. Well, and, and, and recalls really shot up when the Takata airbag uh, situation arose, and that's still an issue because a lot of those have not been repaired. Uh, the repair isn't available yet. So the recalls will be are just a fact of life. And the other thing that we know is, you know, the more electronics you put on vehicles, um, the, the more challenge it is. The, if you look at some of the uh, quality durability studies, it's, it's not that uh, – the cars break down so much, it's the glitchy things in the infotainment system, or the infotainment system doesn't work exactly intuitively as a driver expects. Those are the big challenges for automakers now. And then, and transmissions have been an issue because uh, automakers are trying to make them more and more fuel efficient. So those are the, it's the technological advances that are triggering a lot of the um, the uh, consumer complaints and recalls. Speaking of technology, the Consumer Electronics Show, which for the last few years has been called, I think, the Car Electronics Show, uh, because mm-hmm. it's been all about car makers uh, looking for the latest gadgets to put into cars. Uh, what is kind of the next ramp up technologically when it comes to cars? Because I feel like in the last design cycle, certainly for me, the last two cars that I've purchased, I feel like there's been a real ramp up in terms of the safety uh, and kind of almost autonomous driving vehicle aspects that have been put into the car. So what's the next ramp up here? Well, bingo, you just nailed it. Um, We are seeing more and more of the technologies that will go into autonomous vehicles making their way into uh, our vehicles today, kind of a step-by-step thing. So uh, I I just recently drove the Cadillac CTS that has Super Cruise, where you can actually take your hands off the wheel and your feet off the pedals and off it goes. Those are the kinds of things we're going to see more and more of as we move closer to um, uh, a future of autonomous vehicles. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Michelle Krebs, a senior analyst for autotrader.com, and you can follow Michelle on Twitter at M-I-C-H, Mish Krebs, and also at autotrader underscore com. He's back with us, Josh Wright. He's chief economist at iSims, based in New York, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Here to talk a bit about uh, what's going on in the economy and uh, spin forward into 2018. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Nice to have you here with Pim and myself. It's great to be here. Great to say goodbye to 2017. (laughs) Why? It turned out to be better than everybody thought. Yeah, I think it, but that's exactly one of the things that's good is now we have a little bit less uncertainty. You know, here we are. The world didn't blow up. Um, plenty of difficult things happened, but uh, we're still here. What did we get wrong at the beginning of 2017 when it came to looking at the economic outlook and how things would play out? And I think that when she's, when, when Carol says we, that's the polite <laughs> pronoun for what did you get wrong? You economists. <laughs> well, you know, it was actually a, a year that was relatively close to... Um, 
to expectations, it was actually we were a little bit too dismal. You know, economics is the dismal science, and uh, we actually were a little bit too modest in expectations for growth. Why? Why though? Why be more modest than a little bit more aggressive? Well, I think we were just hearing about the positive global background and how that's affecting Latin America, and I think that holds for North America as well. And I think we underestimated those global. Uh, tailwinds that we'd have and how much they would support what's going on in the U.S. But why? I mean, like, I understand that. But I mean, what piece of information did you not have or what kind of analysis should have been completed in order to give you that kind of result? Well, look, it's forecasting is never an exact science. I mean, we have to we've got to you know, place our bets and, you know, give our point estimates, um, but we weren't that far off. The overall you know, vision was actually, despite all the other crazy changes that happened in the political world, the economy performed pretty close to what we expected. We were a little bit above potential in terms of GDP growth. The labor market continued to get a little bit tighter. Mm -hmm. The biggest surprise was probably inflation, right? The, we had that long stretch of what is, if it's not one thing, it's another month after month. And this don't, this isn't a personal thing. I think it's just the mindset, right, at the beginning of last year, 12 months ago, is that people were more – they tended to be negative. We talk about this market, the financial markets, how people kind of hate, like, the, you know, most hated bull run, if you will, uh, you know, or upward cycle, if you will. So – what you know? Why is it that people tended to feel more comfortable being a little bit more negative versus more positive? I think that's what we're trying to you know kind of. Well, I would out. go back to actually my original comments just about overall sentiment. I mean, yeah. when you have such a change agent as the Trump administration, love it or hate it, it definitely represented change, and there definitely represented a lot of uncertainty. I mean, we were questioning fundamental principles in the political realm, such as our dedication to NATO, and that's just the beginning of the story. We forget, right? It's a year so easy ago, to forget how much we've been through. The president hadn't been sworn in. There was expectations that it was going to be good for the market, but we just didn't know him. Well, the market rallied, I would say, right yes, after the election results, right? I mean, we saw stocks move higher. Anyway, uh, be that as it may, I want to ask The market about, rallied, but not the economists. And sometimes well, the market Well, maybe the economists right. should have opened up the newspaper and taken a look at where <laughs> stocks traded. You know, the stocks of that voting machine. It would have worked out pretty well in 2007, right? Uh we didn't have that kind of election. Anyway, could we just go to the non-farm payroll report uh, just quickly? Just what are you going to what are we going to hear? Give me about 15. Well, we're going to be back close to trend, I think. Uh, my forecast is for just below 200,000. Uh, everything looks like things are going strong in the US economy right now. Housing prices, retail sales, consumer confidence had a little bit of a wobble, but that was probably related to uh, uncertainty about the tax plan. Now that that's in, you know, companies were probably in line with the stock market doing well in December. Uh, Josh Tell me, what is iSIMS? It's cloud-based software that companies use in order to distribute job postings anywhere on the internet, whether it's their own career portal or some kind of aggregator site like Indeed or Monster or Career Builder. And then when uh, job seekers apply for those jobs, they are you know may see that it's an Indeed page or that it's a Target page or whatever the company is. But in reality, uh, they're sending their information and their resumes up through iSIMS, and that's the system that those companies use in order to keep track of all the applicants and the stages of the hiring process that they put them through. Okay, and I'm probably going to ruin your day, so I apologize ahead of time. Why does a company like that have a chief economist? Tell us about how that feeds into the kind of technology that you offer to customers. And I was looking, for example, that, uh, you know, I think it was um, Tractor Supply is just one example of a company that uses your software. Yeah, all kinds of companies across industries and uh, locations in, in the United States and increasingly abroad as well. Um, the point of having an economist there is that we're moving up market in terms of value. Uh, so we're providing data analytics, and that's a trend 
understand the whole industry. But if you want to understand the data, you need to understand a bigger picture of what how your data fits into larger data sets and larger issues and narratives that are going on out there. So they brought me in as they hired some data scientists as well to explore what's in the data and what kind of use that could be put in order to inform public debate, as well as to inform our clients about how to up their game in the world of hiring. Well, and I like talking to you because you give me another way of looking at what's going on in the labor market. So tell me about what kind of snapshots you feel like that you kind of get that maybe we don't get in some of the government reported data. Yeah, well, it's a little bit wonky, but one of the interesting things is that we see our data uh, coming from individual companies. And so Mm -hmm. we measure it by who is the ultimate corporate entity that is doing the hiring versus the government surveys focus more on the local establishment. So it may be the case in some cases that you've got a a major retail company like Macy's maybe shutting down a bunch of stores, but they may be opening some fulfillment centers and warehouses as well. In In that case, the government might be measuring that there's a decline in payrolls for retail trade, but an increase in warehouse or uh, wholesale trade. But we see it as retail payrolls. And in fact, that is what we have been seeing over the last couple of months. So we think that the government is a little bit overstating the decline in retail trade payrolls. And that's what I wanted to follow on, right? Because we, we keep talking about the retail apocalypse. Maybe it isn't as bad. It's just going through some changes in terms of how the model works in the retail sector. I mean, there's no question that there are serious disruptions going on. And a lot of these companies, I mean, Sears is not selling its real estate for no reason. Right. But Sears has been a bad story for over a decade and then some. Yeah. The reality, it's just as you say, it is a more complicated picture than people realize. Yes, there are challenges. Yes, there are closures. Yes, there are job losses. But there are also changes in the way the business is being done. These aren't static companies. They're all trying to adapt to this new environment. And I would say that uh, Google surprise, I mean, not maybe some people, but to me anyway, surprisingly is a big player in this field. It is, actually. They made a big announcement just last year that they wanted to come into this area and bring all their know-how with the world of search and bring it to the world specifically of job search. And you know, it's interesting. It's kind of like the fulfillment of some kind of prophecy. I was just rereading some research from MIT back in the 90s, and they're talking about how someday we're going to come up with better searching methods. And by moving the job search and job application process online, we're going to eventually have technological tools to help us with job matching. And that's exactly the kind of thing that ultimately Google is going to be feeding into. And we and other people in the industry, we're all these different you know, moving parts of that puzzle to see what is the new way that workers and employers find each other in this economy. What does this mean for all the data that's out there? I always love, and I bring this up every time, is it data exhaust that you like to do? Like we have all this Data exhaust. That's right. The data gets created as a byproduct right. of the activity in of the system. Of other stuff going on. So it's all the stuff that could never be observed before, so therefore couldn't be stored and therefore couldn't be analyzed. And that's the change that we're seeing here. How does that make us more efficient as an economy? Well, it's, you know... Or potentially more efficient. Potentially more efficient. That's exactly it. Ultimately, what you want to do is when you've got better information, you hope that then you can come up with smarter ways to hire people and better algorithms to support you and also just better business practices and being a smarter you know, professional in figuring out how to source the right people and how to make the right decisions once you've developed your pool of candidates. Who is the right one? Who's the right fit? These are not easy questions. And it's easy to get, you know, ahead of yourself and think that we're going to solve this problem really quickly. Some of the world's smartest minds in 1999 were thinking that it, would, it was just down the road. Here we are almost 20 years later, and we're seeing significant progress. But, you know, that horizon keeps moving. Is it more is it more challenging uh, as we approach a sub four percent unemployment rate? Because now 
you have a smaller pool of applicants, but you've got to really match specific skills to what it is you're looking for. Yeah, it's uh, we keep hearing from our clients that it is hard to source people, particularly, but it's uneven, particularly in certain areas. There's certain industries and certain occupations. If you want a data scientist, um, you know, good luck. You're going to have to really work hard for it. There are other positions that are going to be you know significantly easier um, because they've. You know, there are just more people around to go for them. Um, but it also depends not only what's the demand and what's the growth outlook, but, uh, you know, what's the outlook, how promising of a career path does that have? Truck drivers, not so easy to find these days. And I also do wonder if it's going to help with disenfranchised workers or workers who are kind of left out of the system and somehow work, this data can help to kind of get them back in. We're seeing more and more of them come into the labor market. And yeah. once we've got a better information on what those outcomes are like, we can design better programs to bring them in. Josh Wright, Chief Economist at iSIMS. Thank you so much. Happy New Year. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, but you let me drive. Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, the drive to the open. And we've got Jim Russell, principal and portfolio manager, Ball and Gainer. $22 billion of assets under management based in Cincinnati. Jim, a pleasure. Happy New Year to you. Tell us about dividend growth and how you measure dividend growth, because it's not just about companies that are able to sport high yields, but it's about companies that are able to increase those dividends over a period of time. How do you find that out? Yeah, hi, Pam, uh, and Happy New Year to you and, and the listeners as well. Uh, in terms of dividend growth, we do usually start with a slightly lower yield, uh, right around 2 25 sometimes 3%. So these are not high-yield stocks, but these are stocks that candidly uh, are able to grow their dividends 10 12 15%, and sometimes a bit more on an annual basis. Uh, what we do, Pam, is we construct a diversified portfolio of those stocks and uh, provide our investors a very steady uh, stream of income while participating in the market's rise. Certainly uh, last year was was a good year for us. We were able to grow our investors' income 8.1% uh, in 2017, uh, 8.1%, 2016, 8.1%. So uh, we feel like that rising stream of income is certainly an inflation beater and, again, uh, a pretty good uh, type of uh, solution if you're looking for a good total return, uh, longer-term buy-and-hold strategy. Okay, Jim, the reason that I wanted to understand this is because, of course, there's been a lot of conversation and analysis about the tax overhaul bill and the repatriation of money for American companies and what they will then do with that money. So if a company uses that money to increase its dividend would that show up on your radar screen? Well, we're, we're, well, here's what we're hoping will happen, and I think it's a little bit early to be too definitive about this. We think that, candidly, many companies, Pam, are going to be fairly specific in their fourth quarter earnings releases on what they're going to do with repatriated funds. But we hope that companies do not do a one-time special dividend. We saw that well, with Microsoft years ago. Uh, what we hope that, that our companies will do, Pam, is basically rise 
maybe uh, uh, increase the dividend in a more gradual way. If a company is increasing its dividend by 8% a year, we're hopeful that they, the management team would say, we're going to bring back several billion dollars and look to increase the dividend 9.5% uh, uh, per year of the foreseeable future. So we're looking for a more gradual increase on a more sustainable basis for the repatriated funds. We do think that dividends will be one of those areas that companies will look to to allocate repatriated funds. And do you expect this then to be kind of a trend that investors can follow for, I don't know, the next several years? Carol, we, we think so. Uh, we, we have had a very successful strategy in place for many years. It's all that we do. We do not do uh, growth stocks. We mm -hmm. do not do uh, hybrids. We don't do convertibles. These are all equities, and it's all that we do. We produce equity income via dividend growth. And so this is, again, an inflation beater. It's a lifestyle enhancer. Uh, and many, uh, not only individuals, but many endowments and foundations use this type of strategy given the fact that they are cash-hungry year after year to fulfill their mission. What's been your returns, just quickly, annually, on average? Uh, uh, we have beaten the market uh, since inception, and the, and the product was inception in 2005, and we've never had a dividend cut of any stock while we owned it. Uh, so we are a forward-looking budge that focuses on cash flow to fund the dividends. Can you look forward into the banking sector and tell us whether you believe that they will be able to increase their dividends this year? Uh, Pam, that's an excellent question. In fact, banking is probably one of our very favorite subsectors out there. Uh, many of the companies, in fact, all of them uh, that uh, we own past the SeaCar um, uh, exam last year with Flying Colors. They all lifted their dividends anywhere from 10 or 11 percent on the low side to about 15 percent on the high side. We think this year will be another re repeat. We think the, the banks are amply capitalized and, and frankly, overcapitalized, and they uh, bleed that to shareholders in the form of dividends. We're, we're looking for another double-digit year in dividend growth from our banks. What's the one risk to this strategy that makes... <laughs> I mean, you say it's been a consistent returner, but I'm just curious um, what might change that. Yeah, well, it, it would probably be, Carol, anything that really impacts uh, the equity market in, in general. Uh, another very stiff recession like the financial crisis. Certainly, we had to be very nimble during that time period to avoid companies that were cutting their dividends uh, or uh, perhaps even eliminating them in some cases. What so, kind of return did you see during the, the financial crisis? Take us back to 07, 08 when the market was just creamed or 08 in particular. I believe that the market was down 37% that year, and we mm -hmm. were down 24. That's another type of attribute to this type of strategy, Carol, and that is basically we have we offer downside protection. When the market uh, undergoes periods of stress, people usually run toward a higher quality security, and those are usually dividend-paying securities that raise their dividends every year through a market cycle. Those are the types of companies that we own. These are companies that are usually a little bit more mature, usually a little bit higher market cap, usually great cash flows. They can meet all their operating needs through internally generated cash flow and then have extra cash flow to, again, increase their dividend to the shareholder every year. That's the type of profile that we're looking for 
uh, in a, a new purchase or a holding um, uh, of interest. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Jim Russell is the principal and portfolio manager, Ball and Gainer, helping to manage more than $22 billion worth of customer assets based in Cincinnati. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Time to take a look at some of the stocks on the move in the Wednesday trading session. I'm Carol Master along with Pim Fox here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. S&P 500, 340 names in the index, a little bit higher today or higher today. 162 lower, three unchanged. Number two decliner in the S&P 500. I always love this ticker. Hog, H-O-G, Harley Davidson, falling in today's session down 3.9% after Longbow analyst David McGregor downgrading that stock to underperform from neutral. He's got a price target of $43, which matches the street low, according to our estimates. Uh, Hog shares, Harley Davidson shares, closing at $50.10 share. This, uh, the analyst uh, making that downgrade after fourth quarter checks revealed Harley Davidson's U.S. retail sales are trending down 5 to 7% with U.S. shipments probably down, quote, at least 20% versus the company's October 17th forecast for fourth quarter shipments. So some concerns about uh, what the sales picture might look like at uh, Harley-Davidson. BlackBerry. You remember BlackBerry? I do indeed. I miss it. I miss that keyboard. All right. Well, I can't give you the keyboard, but I can give you the stock. BlackBerry shares higher by 12.5% today. This comes after the company announces a partnership with Baidu. BlackBerry is, of course, pushing into the self-driving car market, and it has signed a deal with the Chinese internet giant Baidu in order to work together on automotive software. Baidu is going to bundle BlackBerry's QNX vehicle operating system into its Apollo self-driving car platform. It's a set of tools that automakers can use when they're designing these autonomous vehicles, and the partnership includes integrating BlackBerry's in-car entertainment software into Apollo, and the shares of BlackBerry today up 12.5%. Here's another stock uh, that gained, uh, the number four gainer in the S&P 500. Pim, you mentioned it actually a little bit earlier, and that is Chipotle Mexican Grill. That stock, as I mentioned, the number four gainer in the S&P 500. I knew 500. you were going to do Chipotle <laughs> always, Mexican you Grill. You know, it I is like a, this story. It, someone's got to write at least two books about the company. I agree. Harvard Business School, I'm sure, is going to do a case study there. It's up 5.5% in today's session, up more than 16 bucks, $309 a share. Keep in mind, last year it was down 23%, uh, taking a hit as that company tries to really, that restaurant really tries to kind of, I guess, reshape itself and figure out what it's going to be going forward after a lot of uh, problems with uh, food looking for and so a new so CEO. Yeah, they are looking for a new CEO. Uh, restaurant stocks, though, likely to see a windfall from tax reform that will boost both top and bottom line. This is according to uh, SunTrust analyst Jake Bartlett, he put out a note. He says the majority of corporate tax savings to flow through to earnings and other things. Uh, so he sees kind of a, a little bit of an upside as a result of that. And maybe that's what's at play here with Chipotle. Who well, knows? It would make, you, can, you can make the case that if you're going to see a decline in corporate tax rates from 35 to 21. It's going to be a good thing, right? Right. And also 
many of these restaurants are limited in terms of the U.S. market. So if they're going it's to benefit, they, exactly. So they benefit from that. Uh, shopping, you know, I know we all like shopping. Wayfair, based in Boston, home to Bloomberg 1061, Boston, Newburyport, and nice. 1330 Metro West Fox. and the South Shore. Uh, Wayfair, though, not doing so nicely today. The shares down three percent. This is the online retailer of such uh, things as sofas and furnishings. Uh, this came after a downgrade. From Bank of America Merrill Lynch, they downgraded the stock to a neutral from a buy, and they said given expectations for slower growth and increased investment spending this year. So that hurts the stock, but I just always know whenever anybody talks about increased investment spending, and you kind of think, hmm, yeah. we're seeing that in all forms, particularly when we looked at the Institute for Supply Management report today, but that did not help Wayfair, the shares down 3%. All right, let's talk a little bit about the uh, Volatility Index report. It, uh, The VIX, of course, down 7.2% today, closing at 9.07. So far, PIM, in the first two trading days of the year, now we've got the VIX down almost 18%, so pullback on volatility again. I've heard this story before. Maybe below 9, you never know. Isn't that Go. amazing? All right, everybody, you are listening to Bloomberg Markets, right here on Bloomberg Radio. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave! Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! Hey, Mr. Wilson. Bloomberg Stocks commerce, blogger, author, and, of course, you can follow Dave on Twitter, at the one Dave. And, all right, so... The one, Dave, what's your stock of the day? That would be Arena Pharmaceuticals, Pim. And just to put this company in context, you think about blockbuster drugs, a billion dollars in annual sales. That's the benchmark. Arena just passed its 20th anniversary. And if you put all the revenue together for its history, you'd basically have half a blockbuster. Data compiled by Bloomberg puts the figure at $524 million or so. Nonetheless, Arena's market value, about three times that historical revenue. Company shares trade under the ticker ARNA. Uh, the price more than doubled last year after four years of declines. And today, Arena moved higher after Wells Fargo analyst Jim Birchenough raised his rating for the first time since his coverage began in December 2015. So you're talking more than two years. He moved the to the. Wait, wait. The stock was up 139% last year. Where was he last year? Well, you know, some people saying. move slowly. Okay. And he uh, now is at the equivalent of buy. He had been uh, at, at the uh, firm's version of a hold rating. He more than doubled his 12-month share price estimate to $53. Birchenup cited Arena's significant progress, in his words, on a treatment for high blood pressure in the arteries, along with prospects for a medicine uh, to combat a bowel disease called ulcerative colitis. Now, Arena rose to its highest price since July 2015, so you're talking two and a half years there, closed with a gain of about 11% at $40.17. Thank you very much. Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Commist, and as I said, blogger at MLive. Go on the Bloomberg. And please send him an email at dwilson at bloomberg.net. Sign up for his daily free email newsletter. It will help make you a smarter investor. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.